defend the faith, the how and why of today's attack on Holy Mother Church. Colonel Frank King graduated from John Carroll University in 1956 and devoted the, the next 30 years as an active member of the United States Army Reserve, serving 23 of those years in psychological operation unit, units, his career including commanding the 350th Psychological Warfare Company, graduating from various Army schools including the Command and General Staff College in 1975, and commanding the 2nd Psychological Operations Group, which had the mission of providing PSYOP support to U.S. Army forces in Europe. Colonel King is known throughout the psychological operations community for his continuing contributions to this exciting field. He is a student of military history with emphasis on the causes and outcome of World War II. In civilian life, Colonel King is a management consultant for physicians and dentists. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please give a warm welcome to Colonel King. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope I can contribute to charting your way into the new millennium by understanding the past. It's a very good objective uh, stated in your brochure. So I'm going to try to cover some ground and hope in the end that you can come to a conclusion. A sermon by a young priest in 1944 made a lasting impression on me. The place was St. Aloysius Church here in Cleveland. It was Lent and the war was on. I remember sitting about three quarters of the way up on the left side of the church. The church was at, darkened for Good Friday services. My grandparents had eight sons who served in the war and all saw combat. Six of the eight were in the Naval Reserves and they began leaving in March of 1940, which was really like 21 months before the outbreak of war. All six of these Naval Reservists, including my father, were gone well before Pearl Harbor. The two brothers that were not in the Naval Reserves ended up in the 2nd Infantry Division, which fought in Europe, and the 2nd Marine Division, which fought in the Pacific. The sermon at St. Elwishus that Lent in 1944 dealt with materialism and how it would be a factor that would destroy the United States. It was a long sermon, and I know I did not understand it all, but for some reason it left an indelible mark on my mind. It was interesting, too, that the priest was relatively young. His whole sermon was on materialism. And during the war, for those of you that can remember it, uh, there really wasn't much in the way of materialism. At the age of 10, and for some years after, I wondered how was materialism going to destroy the United States? None of my grandparents even owned a house or car. They provided the basics for their family, believed in their Catholic faith, and passed their beliefs on to their children and grandchildren. And I might also add, they died happy people. And I'm very proud of them. One of the key factors in changing the beliefs of the American uh, people is the influence of the media. And here when I'm talking about this, think long term. You don't change people's opinions in the short term, 
it's over a long term. And in the case of what we might be talking about today, our nation, think in terms of like two generations, because that's about what it is. Most Americans get their news from television, uh, radio, newspapers, magazines, and so on supplement this. But TV is the main source of information for people. Fox News and many other channels is owned by Rupert Murdoch. NBC is owned by General Electric. ABC is owned by the Disney Corporation. And CBS is owned by Viacom, along with 39 other TV stations and 184 radio stations. So the point here is all of our news is coming through a very narrow channel and they're really all in lockstep. I don't think I'm telling you anything new. If you switch from channel to channel, you find out the same news is on every night on every station. Okay, propaganda is a word that people dislike. It has an evil connotation. And if I tell people you're being propagandized, they usually become offended because they think uh, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, and I'm beyond uh, being propagandized. Unfortunately, this isn't true. Uh, most people believe they are well informed simply by getting the news and at the busy way we live in this country, you're only getting smatterings of news. If they have somebody on, you've witnessed this, they have half a sentence, bang, then the commentator's on and he's trying to tell you what this person said. A simple definition of propaganda is a planned program to influence the emotions, opinions, attitudes, and beliefs of the target audience in a way that is beneficial to those interested in thought control for a particular purpose. So we can have a particular purpose or we can have a general purpose. Basically here I'm talking about a general purpose and more specifically about how this affects the church. So let me quickly go through these slides and I think they can help explain uh, propaganda a lot better than I can do with my hands or my voice. Whether we call these things propaganda, psychological operations, information systems, news, or whatever, the ingredients are similar or the same if the intent is to influence the audience in a certain direction. So consider these interchangeable terms when I'm talking here for the rest of the speech. Uh, you've heard that approximately 90% of the journalists admit that they are liberals, who they vote for, they vote for liberals, and they obtain all their information from left-leaning sources. In 2002, a book came out that described how the media distorts the news. It was written by a Mr. Bernard Goldberg, and the book's name was Bias. And it received some attention from conservative leaning talk, radio uh, talk, but really not a lot. And this book is very important. 
I'd recommend that you read it. Uh, not that I agree with his presentation, but the conclusion that he has in this book is that he is a liberal. He does agree with the liberal causes, but the reason that he wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal, which ultimately got him in the very much trouble, was that he thought the other side should have some form, not only the left side or the liberal side. And throughout the book, what he really is doing is expressing shock at the way he was treated. So let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Bernard Goldberg, who wrote the book Bias. He worked for CBS for almost 30 years and won seven Academy Awards. He was rated one of the 10 most interesting people on TV by TV Guide. He wrote articles for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And he worked for Dan Rather for over 20 years. So you can see this man had his whole life involved in the mass media. In 2001, he wrote an article about bias, stating that, again, the, the right-leaning side, or our side, should have some uh, input into the news so that people would get a more balanced view rather than the liberal or left-leaning view. Uh, again, he believes in liberal causes. He says that throughout the book but thinks that it could be more balanced, the news media. Okay, what really shocked him though was that all his colleagues, and he doesn't mention any exceptions, consider him an outright traitor. Dan Rather will not forgive him, even though he worked for him very effectively for 22 years. And Goldberg says that Rather told him we thought you were one of us, not one of those right-wingers. And since then, he's been isolated and ostracized and really out of work. So this bears out what I'm trying to say for the rest of this talk better than I can say it. It's from one of them, and even he can't believe that in his attempt to be fair, he's totally ostracized and finished. In the book, he uses some examples. For instance, when Steve Forbes was running for president, uh, he tried to describe the flat tax, which is, uh, in my opinion, a very good and fair way to tax the American public as opposed to what we have today. But whenever they referred to Steve Forbes in his flat tax plan, they always used words like tax scheme, this is a wacky idea. So, so they're always alienating the audience before you even understand what he's talking about. And this is what goes on endlessly. Okay, we're all set here, I guess. Uh, the red arrow going up. If we had objective mass media and news, we would have, we hope, balance proportion and objectivity in what people consider on any given subject. And the way, that, the way that this is done, and again, it's over a long term, 
is that we started out on the left changing views and enforcing things to get people to view things, whatever it is, in a certain way. Then we distorted a little bit. Again, distorting it so that it's positive for our side. Then you inject disinformation, and disinformation can be true, but it only, again, says one side. And eventually we get down to where we can propagandize people and almost say anything you want. Now, on the other side, sometimes you have to admit that there are other opinions, and you can show these opinions, but you keep them very weak. Or what happens is they'll say, like, uh, well, the Army said this, and then Dan Rather will put an expression on his face like, he doesn't believe it, so you shouldn't believe it either. But essentially what we have going on today is it's just propaganda by omission. And anything that they don't want you to hear is just blacked out. You don't hear about it. So you can hear all the views going to the left and very few going to the right. And it ends up, if you're going to make a, a decision that's balanced, you can't do it because you don't have the information. And you are propagandized even if you don't know it. Okay, would you change the slide, please? Okay, now the, the propagandist knows he has to be credible. So you do not want to get caught in a lie. And you, you can avoid this. You, you tell things that are true. But again, they're unbalanced. And you, you should know your target. In other words, in 1950, you could say the American people think a certain way. In the 1960s, it radically changed, as we all know. And they thought a certain way. And then we continued down the path that we're on today. And uh, what we're showing today could never have been done in 1950 or even early 1960s. But it's very gradual, and people don't realize that they're being propagandized or having their opinions changed as the time goes on, over a matter, again, of probably two generations. But it has affected all of us, including me. Uh, we'll talk later about how to defend against this. Now, the list here that we have in changing percep perceptions is not, by any stretch of the imagination, all-inclusive, but it's an example. We can talk about environmentalism, terrorism, population, the arms race, weapons of mass destruction, deaths, nuclear power, war, and so on. Let me digress a second and just use debt as an example. You remember... 18 months or two years ago, the national debate was we have $13 trillion of excess tax coming in. How are we going to handle this? Well, should we give some of the money back to the people? The consensus was very little, really. What we should do with this $13 trillion is pay, to, pay into Medicare and Social Security because we know they're going bankrupt. And this was the theme that had everybody going for a long time. Then uh, September 11th comes. Now we make a switch. 
We're going to spend the $80 billion fighting terrorism, and everybody's sharing. We're increasing the defense budget by 15 20%. Everybody's sharing. What I'm saying is showing you how quickly these things change. Now, nobody's talking about debt. Not a problem anymore. We don't hear about Medicare. We don't hear about Social Security. And from a projection of $150 billion surplus, a short time ago, we're in now in the $250 billion deficit, a swing of $400 billion, but it's not a problem. Let's worry about terrorism in Iraq. Okay, so on any of these things, we offer the solutions, and they're usually the solutions that only the government can provide, and you just sit back, do what we want, uh, we'll avoid anything that's difficult and do what's easy. Okay, put. So how does the propagandist work? It's like this. And again, the propaganda source, think of it as whoever is what. Authors of books, uh, the mass media, uh, college professors or whatever. He, he tries to always reach key communicators. These are the people that disseminate what he wants disseminated to up at the top there, the ill-informed, which is the mass of the people. They do not have the information necessary to make the right decisions. So he also will say that that's like roughly 80% of the people. The propagandist wants to strengthen the people that are his supporters. We'll say that's 10%. And he wants to weaken the opposition, which is another 10%. And I would predict this room is probably the opposition. So they're going to direct things to weaken your position and strengthen theirs. Okay. Again, think long term. None of these things happen in a short time. What we do is first try to change your emotions, do this with pictures and whatever. As we can progress along that, then we work on your opinions. They're more solid. Then as we progress, work on your attitudes. And finally, we hope to change your core beliefs, but this is not too easy. It really takes a long time to do this. This is like saying, uh, I, my objective is to turn you from traditional Roman Catholics into pagans. I know that, that that's, that's not really an achievable objective, but it's something we can work for, and I can weaken your opinions and attitudes on traditional beliefs like we have going on right now. <clears throat> okay. So once we progress along and we've got the audience at a certain point, you keep it up. That's all that this last slide means. You take the target, you d do diversions, you do everything you can to divide them, you confuse them, you fragment them, and you persist. You don't let them go back to where they were. So that's a very short course on propaganda, but uh, this is the way it works. 
and it's being worked against you and me. And it's very difficult to fight because we have no mass media, but uh, we still have to try. And the bottom line here again is we're subject to propaganda by omission. Okay, you could turn that off now. Let me give you a good example here of uh, distortion of facts leading to a false conclusion with a purpose to undermine. Now this comes back down here to us Catholics. Eugenio Pacelli, as you know, was Pius XII. And prior to 1963, when the seven-hour play came out called The Deputy, it was almost impossible. In fact, I could not find anything negative about Pius XII. Uh, all the play essentially said was that he could have done more to prevent the Holocaust. Okay, Pius XII was a representative of the Vatican uh, in Bavaria between 1917 and 1925. He then moved to Berlin until 1930 when he was made Cardinal and Secretary of State. Then he went back to Rome. Uh, this was later used against him. And it was, a, well, if he was in Germany all that time, he must be pro-German which must be the equivalent of some kind of crime. Uh, Pius XI died on February 10, 1939, and Pacelli was elected Pope on March 2nd. Now, during the tenure of Pius XI, he signed 21 treaties with governments. And what these treaties were was the rights and responsibilities of the Vatican in the nation concerned. And Pacelli was involved with this as Secretary of State. So in 1933, uh, remember these dates now, Hitler was made Chancellor of Germany in January 30th, I think it was, and he wanted to have one of these concordats. And it was in keeping with everything the church was doing. So the Pope had an agreement with uh, Germany, and that was signed in August of 1933. So we're talking seven months after Hitler came to power. Uh, later on, what this was, was was like, he only signed an agreement with Hitler, but really this was the 22nd agreement signed. And you can see again how these facts later came out. Now, Pius XII was a diplomat. The Vatican was supposed to be neutral, just as the Red Cross was. And he had to be careful about taking sides in these issues. And remember, there was communism and Stalin. They were allies of us. Uh, Hitler and Mussolini were on the other side, fascists and Nazis. And then, of course, England and the United States. So the Pope knew that if he went too strongly against Mussolini or Hitler, it would cause reprisals against the, the war victims or whatever. And again, he had to maintain neutrality if he was going to have any attempt to help anyone. 
So let me give you some statements made, and these are very important, about Piesta 12. In 1941 and 42, the New York Times said the Pope was a lonely voice speaking against Nazism in his Christmas uh, message broadcast over Vatican Radio to the world. In October of 42, the London Times praised him for his condemnation of Nazism and public support for Jewish victims. In a Time Magazine article written in 1940, Albert Einstein, who was anti-Catholic, said only the Catholic Church stood squarely across Hitler's campaign for suppressing the truth. In 1943, James Wiseman, Israel's first president, said the Holy See is lending powerful help wherever it can to help his co-religionist. Moshe Sharat, the first foreign minister and second prime minister of Israel, thanked the Pope and the church for all they did in various countries to rescue Jews in the closing days of World War II. In 1945, the chief rabbi of Israel, Isaac Herzog, expressed gratitude to Pius XII on behalf of the Jewish people. In 1955, the Union of Italian Jewish Communities proclaimed Day of Gratitude for the Pope's wartime assistance. The chief rabbi of Rome, Israel Zali, turned Catholic in 1944 and took the name of Eugenio because he was so impressed with the work of the Pope in behalf of the Jews. In May 1955, the Israeli Philharmonic flew to Rome for a special performance to express gratitude to the Pope and the Catholic Church. When Pius XII died in 1958, Golda Meir, Israel's foreign minister, praised his moral truths in his defense of victims. So for two decades after World War II, praise of Pius XII was unanimous from Jews and other people all over the world. That's the point I'm trying to make. You couldn't find anything negative. In 1967, uh, an Israeli historian, historian, historian and diplomat, Pincus Lapide, wrote the most definitive work on Pius XII and said the Pope saved between 700,000 and 860,000 Jews from death. The name of that book was Three Popes and the Jews. So no pope in history has been so universally praised by Jews. This list could go on and on, but uh, time restraints do not permit it. So just think of that now. We're up to more than two decades past the end of the war. He's received absolutely nothing but praise, and especially from Jews. Now, in 1999, a British journalist comes along. His name's John Cornwell. He creates a sensation with his book called Hitler's Pope. Uh, other books that follow the same line were Papal Sin by Gary Wills, uh, Constantine's Sword by James Carroll, Under His Very Wid Window by Susan Zaccotti. Okay, all of these books now, you probably have heard about them. Uh, they received book reviews 
They were bestsellers. They were on talk shows. They were written about in papers. And now the general conclusion is, boy, it, Pius XII, I mean, he had something going with Hitler, didn't he? And why didn't he do something to help these people? I mean, this is the consensus today because of what started in 1999 with these books and being disseminated very widely, again, through the news media. Okay, John Cornwell said that he was a practicing Catholic and that he gained access to secret Vatican archives. And he's really, if, what he really is, is a former Catholic and agnostic. Well, here's another way that this is done with pictures. Uh, the cover of the book shows at that time Nuncio Pacelli, that's Pope Pius XII later, leaving a reception for President Hindenburg in 1927 in Germany. What they did on the cover was blur it out so that you could see the traditional German helmet with a guy opening a door, I think it was, and Pius XII at that time again, the Nuncio getting into the car. And it leaves the impression that he must be leaving a meeting with Hitler. I mean, this is the first impression you get when you look at the cover. So you can do this in all kinds of ways and by leaving impressions. And if you don't have the background, you can't counter it. So what do we do? We appoint a commission that no one ever hears of. And we're apologizing and trying to defend. And it's a one-way street to nothing. Hey, Cornwall's real ag agenda, he's the guy that wrote Hitler's Pope, undermine papal authority, have women priests, abandon celibacy, permit abortion, and so on and so on. Uh, here's another one that's, I like this one. Uh, Rabbi Ma Marvin Hayer, he's the current head guy, I guess, at the Simon Wiesenthal Center which I believe is in California. He contributes to this by saying uh, the Pope was silent, meaning helping the Jews. What kind of an outfit is the Simon Wiesenthal Center? Well, I can remember that, because uh, people send me things like this. They had a campaign several years back, or maybe it's five years, I don't know. Send in millions of dollars. We're on the trail of Joseph Mengele, the doctor that supposedly committed all these atrocities. So people send in the money and they think this, this outfit's gonna do something about it. Then it wasn't six months later you found out Joseph Mengele has been dead for 12 years. But they just keep collecting money and keeping this thing going. For what? For themselves, not for any source of truth. So the attack on the Pope was not done because somebody's interested in history or that they really even want to attack the Pope. It's just another knife into the Catholic Church. In other words, we're responsible for uh, you know, a lot of bad things that happened. And we're supposed to apologize and maybe even pay for it. A new book is going to come out. This guy's a real winner, too. 
Daniel Goldhagen. Somebody bought him for several million dollars, I'm sure. A history chair, I think it's at Harvard. And his first book was a sensation, and what it did, they sold this all over Europe, was that, uh, if I'm remembering right, the book was called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And the thesis of the book is that uh, every German regardless is guilty of the Holocaust. And again, it got very wide uh, dissemination. He was on all the talk shows and everything, selling books all over the place. Well, he's got a new book coming out now. This will be a winner, you can bet. And it blames the Holocaust on the teachings of the Catholic Church. See, so the attacks never stop. And uh, we don't really have anybody out there doing the defending. There's ways to counterattack, but uh, and it's hard to disseminate. But I'll be darned if I'm going to apologize for things that I had nothing to do with, and neither should anyone else apologize. So, Don, where are you? How am I doing? Uh, <clears throat> Why did I use this Pius XII example? Okay. It demonstrates how you can take truth, and I think that's very conclusive with what I said, with all the things that were said 20 years after the war. Turn it 180 degrees and have the mass of the people believe it. And they do believe it. I've talked to people, you know, that's, well, that, that Pope, you know, he had a real shady background. Uh, what you have to do is, Take your time, persist with the multimedia forms, and enhance your position with countless examples. And that's what happens. So today, Pius XII is a bad guy. Uh, I guess the current pope was talking about possibly putting him up for sainthood, but uh, we can't do that because he has this bad image from World War II. And then there's other things like uh, you mentioned, you've read probably, and so have I, uh, that the Jesuits are like the SS tropes for the Pope. See, it's, it's another relating two things that should be evil. Jesuits are equal to the SS and the Pope is equal to Hitler. This goes on and on. I mean, you've, I know, I think some of this has been covered in previous talks, but we're supposed to apologize for the Crusades. You know, this has taken things that happened a thousand or more years ago uh, and not describing what the situation was in the world at that time. But, you know, there was also counter. What about the, the Muslims coming into France and uh, the gates of Vienna and taking over the Balkans and controlling Spain for 500 years? Uh, you just don't talk about things like that. And then I know you heard something about the Inquisition, but this is another one, a word that's got a very evil con connotation. According to what I read, about 5,000 people were executed over three and a half centuries. That doesn't amount to a lot of people. But at the same time, Henry VIII probably killed 10 times as many Catholics when he defected from the church. But you don't hear that. And when you hear the word Inquisition, this is like 
puts terror in the, uh, my God, it must have been another Holocaust, right? Well, it wasn't. Uh, the current crisis in the church, it's, uh, there again, it's overplayed. According to the figures I saw, there was 227 priests have been accused of sexual misconduct with mostly young boys between 13 and 17. That represents about four-tenths of 1% of the 51,000 priests and brothers in the United States. So it was a very unfortunate thing. The cover-up by people like Cardinal Law was very unfortunate, to say the least. Uh, that's the bad side, but the other side is, you know, why did it have to be paid up day after day on TV, front page stories, and everything else? When you're talking about these 227 priests, uh, he's accused of molesting somebody. Well, what do you mean by molesting them? You know? Uh, on the one end, you've got the cover-up that's bad, and on the other end, I'm sure you have people trying to pick up some free money uh, with lawyers that are very happy to do this. Uh, it, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to go on too much with this, but it's another example of Catholic bashing. That's, there's other religions that uh, have some bad things going on, but you see an article about this big in the paper. So these negative portrayals, you know, they, they hurt our image with the rest of the population. And the bad thing, you probably know this as well as I do, it gives weak Catholics a chance to drop out of the church and to stop giving money and everything, which is exactly the end objective. How does uh, how do people like us, traditional Catholics, uh, feel about how this drastic change came came across? I want to come near the end here by saying one thing: uh, too many people want to be. And this includes the higher clergy want to be part of the world. That's my opinion, and not take care of their spiritual uh, responsibilities. But a woman named Bella Dodd, this is interesting, served as legal counsel to the Communist Party USA until her conversion to Catholicism. She testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee in Congress in the 1950s and said at that time that the communists had put 1,100 people into the priesthood, and that they were progressing to the highest positions in the church. And she predicted the future of the church would be chaos. Again, I want to digress here a minute. Usually in our society, as soon as you mention the word communist, it has a very negative connotation for the person saying it. We really have an aversion to saying anything bad about communists. So uh, what is this guy, a McCarthyite or what? See, that's, 
McCarthyite is a bad word in itself. But in 1991, when the Soviet Union opened up its archives, we found out, and any historian does, and again, this hasn't been played up, that Joseph McCarthy didn't even scratch the surface. We had people all over, especially in Roosevelt's entourage, that may not have been communist card carriers, but they did everything they could to go along with the Soviet Union in giving them our secrets. This includes guys like Harry Hopkins, who lived in the White House and, you know, again, was Roosevelt's front man. He was the guy who went back and forth. But the situation was far worse than Joseph McCarthy ever said. And you don't hear about this. It's still not nice to talk about communists. You know, they're not bad people. I mean, maybe Stalin got out of hand a little bit by killing 35 million people, but if it was somebody else, maybe they would have done it better. So Belladad uh, said, why the attack on the Catholic Church? Because at least at that time, it was the most feared organization by the communists. And you can remember at the end the mass play, pay, praying for the conversion of communism and St. Michael and everything else. And then I believe it was somewhere around 1966, being just like that, it all stopped. Why? I don't know. Uh, I have ideas, but... Okay, she said, uh, the idea was not to destroy the church, but to destroy the faith of the people. And I think that's what we have going on today. And I think you probably agree. Uh, all this crisis with the clergy. Um, we have right here in the city, it was big play for a long time with St. Gregory the Great Church. A uh, million and a half dollars is missing. And of course the inference is the Monsignor that died stole it. Well, I knew the Monsignor and he was a wonderful man and he carried his primary objective was that uh, the maximum number of children get a Catholic education at the most reasonable price possible. So he ran that church that way and uh, every parent had to participate in numerous ways to keep the tuition down. But all the articles just kept coming out and coming out. Million and a half dollars is missing. And when you read them, you think he stole the million and a half dollars. Well, what really happened was he left all his money to the church. He was a businessman. He did lose some money in his ventures, but nothing was stolen. And what it boils down to what they're really talking about was he didn't pay his diocesan tax or whatever the proper term is. You know, every, every church is supposed to pay a percentage down to the diocese. Well, he paid somebody, didn't pay the right amount. And uh, of course that doesn't, uh, it's not explained that way. When they send the TV crews on the street, what do you think about your priest stealing the money? Uh, nobody said they agreed with it. And anybody that said that they thought he was a wonderful man and a wonderful pastor all these years, decades, uh, they just don't put it on TV. That's the way it works. You don't say something positive. They want to hear somebody say, well, that dirty rat stole all our money. But nobody said it. 
so you didn't have any interviews. Okay, uh, are the communists still around? Not by name, but they're still here. They just changed their name. They have the same philosophy. Big government, oppression, higher taxes, eliminate all the opposition. They just call themselves different names, but the same, same philosophies there. Okay, then I say in conclusion, why is this bias in the media so effective? The agendas tends toward revolution of our traditional values, our religion, our nation, our family, and our morals. And again, if you go back, don't think in terms of the last year. Think in terms if you're old enough of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and so on. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll find out that anybody that lived in those times would be totally shocked by what's going on today. So over two generations, uh, this has had a huge impact on our whole country. Today, we've got all kinds of time-saving devices, but no time. Uh, people are living in a rat race, and this enhances the ability of the propagandist. Because they can't read a book. I think only 2% of the people ever read any kind of a book. And uh, my child has to be on this team by the time he's five. And I must be in this social circle. And I have to go to this place for a vacation so the right people see me. I got to have my children educated in this specific way. And it ends up that everybody's driven and has little time to think. And it always amazes me when I see runners and walkers and everything else that they always have to have their earphones on. And I'm thinking, why can't they just walk and run and think? Or worse than that, you go in a restaurant, two young women come in, open up their purses, they both start talking on cell phones. And then I'm wondering, why did they even come in together? All they're doing is talking on phones. And you know most of it is nonsense. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're like caught in a trap. It's kind of like these gerbils on the wheels. And uh, if you don't have time to investigate and try to counter these articles and at least ask the question, why are they telling me this? You know, you're, all, you're automatically defeated. You have no way out. All you're doing is depending on them. And then, you know, people don't want to get involved and they don't want to get overwhelmed and don't say things that upset my lifestyle. Uh, in many ways, it's sad. So you've got to slow down. You've got to try to educate yourself. You have to build some kind of a foundation. And uh, I'm going to ask Don to pass out a thing by Congressman Paul. Uh, he's from Texas and probably one of the most honorable congressmen we have. And I didn't talk about Iraq, but this is a perfect example of what I'm telling about propaganda. We're talking about committing American uh, military people to war. We're talking about spending hundreds of billions of dollars, and we are already a bankrupt country. Uh, but again, money is no problem, see? So, we're told that uh, the Saddam Hussein is a bad guy 
and uh, he probably is, and I wouldn't try to defend him, but there's plenty of bad guys in the world. He's not the only one. And what Congressman Paul is saying here is these questions should be asked, but they probably won't allowed to be asked. And he's right. We just say things, well, he has weapons of mass destruction. A lot of people have weapons of mass destruction. And uh, I seriously doubt my opinion is that Saddam Hussein has much of anything. What, of jar of germs or, uh, that he can't disseminate? Or a few old artillery shells with nerve gas? It's the most scrutinized piece of real estate on the face of the earth. I don't think you could move a wagon of uh, lettuce around in there without us knowing about it. We've got satellites up above. But, you know, they just keep saying, he's bad. He's got weapons of mass destruction. Well, down the road, maybe 20 years from now, he'll be a threat to Israel. He'll never be a threat to the United States. Right now, let me finish with saying this, because this is in the plane dealer, and the source is from uh, the Israeli Defense Forces. Okay, uh, This is the most astounding to me. At the height of the Cold War, ladies and gentlemen, the United States Army had 8,000 tanks to fight the Soviet Union. Uh, Israel today has 3,900 tanks. That's half of what the United States had in the 80s. They've got 275 helicopters, 435 fighter bombers, F-15s and 16s, and 9,600 pieces of artillery. So, and 200 minimum and 400 nuclear warheads that they had by 1968. So this has enabled Israel to run roughshod over all their neighbors because none of them have nuclear weapons. And it's been the policy of our government that Israel would always be stronger than all their neighbors combined, and they easily are. Not only with conventional weapons, which are the absolute best, they don't have any old junk. It's all new stuff. As soon as we get it, they get it. Uh, but the nuclear weapons are the deciding factor. If they want to send out people to assassinate someone, commando teams, uh, destroy their things, attack the nuclear reactor in Iraq like they did in 1981 or two. They just do this with impunity. And that's what this war is about, in my opinion. Certainly not about defending the United States. Saddam Hussein is not going to attack the United States unless he wants to commit national suicide. And he knows that. And even Saddam Hussein has children and grandchildren. So. Uh, you know, this is just another example of being totally distorted. So read Congressman Paul's questions, and he doesn't even mention what I mentioned there, because if he does, you'll probably be out of Congress in the next election. But uh, this is, uh, we are propagandized and don't know it. So okay, that, I think that concludes what I have to say. Okay.
you were talking uh, early on about television, how strong it is. What's your opinion? Why do you think uh, a bunch of conservatives with money have never gotten together and have their own station? You know, is there enough conservatives out there? I mean, will, will, they, will they be blackballed? The problem. I mean, you know, it, it's it's relatively easy to start a network. And now, why has not that been happened? Especially after uh, the emergence of Fox News, which has been sort of conservative or more conservative than the other uh, news uh, stations, and they've gotten pretty good ratings. Well, you let me ask answer the question if I can. It's not only the question of putting up the money and building the facilities. The real issue is the advertising. And it's the same with the papers. Uh, why can't the art papers print certain articles? If they do, they immediately get a bunch of complaints and they're told, we'll knock off the advertising and that'll finish your paper. Because what we pay for the paper doesn't really pay for it, it's the advertising. And it's the same with the TV. But let, let me say a word about Fox News. They appear to be this way. But you got guys like Sean Hannity now. See, he, he's an actor. He's trying to make himself, I'm Mr. Patriot. And what, this is a technique that they use. And let me explain it as an example. They're more conservative than the other news uh, stations, and they've gotten pretty good ratings. Well, you let me ask, answer the question if I can. It's not only the question of putting up the money and building the facilities. The real issue is the advertising. And it's the same with the papers. Uh, why can't the art papers print certain articles? If they do, they immediately get a bunch of complaints and they're told, we'll knock off the advertising and that'll finish your paper. Because what we pay for the paper doesn't really pay for it, it's the advertising. And it's the same with the TV. But let, let me say a word about Fox News. They appear to be this way, but you got guys like Sean Hannity now. See, he, he's an actor. He's trying to make himself, I'm Mr. Patriot. And what, this is a technique that they use. And let me explain it as an example. Uh, within the last week, they had on a congresswoman from Ohio. She was a petite lady, maybe in her 50s, I don't know. Very well-spoken and a real lady. So she was on the show. When Combs is interviewing her, everything was fine. He would ask her a question and she would answer it. You could just see Hannity. He couldn't wait to get into it. And what she was saying is she doesn't see any imminent threat from Iraq to the United States. Why do we have to attack him now? What's this big rush? Well, as soon as she starts making points, Hannity starts yelling over her. And that's what he does, and that's what all these people do. See, if you go on a TV station, like say I go on, what the techniques they'll use is they'll put three people against me so that while I'm answering a question, they're thinking up something to make me look bad. And if I still get through, then they just yell over you, and when you finish the half hour, You've accomplished nothing. That's basically what I say about these Sunday shows. They're, they're theater for the American people. It, they're not really a source of information for us. Did I answer the question or not? Okay. Thank you, sir. Um, as somebody who is 
doing things regarding Catholic action and, and uh, involved in business and politics in the state of Montana. Uh, I'm one of those who you might say we're all victimized. So whenever something is written about me in the newspaper, I'm anti-government. Now, a good example that I want to give you is that conversely, uh, an individual who lives in the Bitter Valley of Montana who is an organizer of Earth First, the environmental terrorist organization that spikes trees and so on and so forth, which you've all heard of, Howie Wolk, he's always identified as a conservationist. Never is his identity with Earth First ever brought out. And right now, uh, the Montana Human Rights Network is doing a, uh, an expose on me in conjunction with Morris Dees at the Southern Law, uh, Property Law Center because of my affiliation with the Second Amendment and so on. And not only do they like to misquote you, again, anti-government and so on and so forth, but uh, one, of the, one of the comments that I made in a letter to the uh, public servants of Libby, Montana, in a letter was that in their minds I have the black plague of being anti-government. Now see they twist your words to where they say, meaning the human rights people in, in their literature, they say Ferenkopf says he has the black plague of being anti-government. You see they twist these words. So what I would like to, to tell everybody here that as we become more involved in Catholic action and do things to affect our business, our neighbors, uh, to be uh, what we're supposed to do, be ready for this kind, kind of thing and be prepared as best as you can so that you can counter by example, for example, Howie Wolf, let these other people know, well, why is it that the Revalue Republic or the, or the Living Paper uh, isn't telling you that Howie Wolf is the founder of Earth First? Don't you find a little bias there? So what you have to do is seek out things that you can do to demonstrate to these people that they're giving the enemy a free pass. Hey, what they do is... Uh the issues are never addressed. They, they use name calling very effectively. You know, it's like Christian extremist and right wing extremist and fascist and, uh, you know, uh, stupid and hate mongering and every. All these titles are used against people like you. And uh, you're not going to get a fair forum. Uh, let, let me just add this in. If you ever. What they do, General Westmoreland was the best on this. I think it was Dan Rather, I'm almost sure, but it was a good while back. They interviewed him about 16 hours okay, before it went on the show for an hour. So what they do is you answer the question honestly, and the more that they have taken time to ask you these questions, when it comes time to editing, which they say they have the right to do, they snip it all up, and it'll make it look like you're evading questions or not answering them at all. So he was under these lights. They had scenes, you know, he had beads of sweat on his forehead. Well, General, what about this? I know darn well that question wasn't asked at that time. See, his face with the beads of sweat made it look like he was lying. So I would never go on a program at all where there's any editing.
I would say, if I'm going to be on a program, I'm going on with these rules. I'm not going to have Sean Hannity yelling over me. I get 10 minutes to talk. You get 10 minutes to talk. We can ask so many questions. But you know what? They won't do that. See, they, they want it where they can edit it, and that it can always be made to look bad. Uh, editors spike stories. Simply by changing the caption under a picture, you can change the whole meaning. Uh, I'm reasonably convinced, I can't prove this, these demonstrations like against the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, they show all these long-haired hippies and you know what we would consider odd people demonstrating. I, I'm pretty certain that that's financed by the international. We do anything. Find out who the people are that are like a little bit off. We'll pay you some money. Go and throw a hand grenade through the window of this bar, or get these women and rape them. And you do this to both sides, and the next thing you know, you've got a huge war going. We went into Bosnia in 1995. We're still there. We went into Kosovo, what, three years ago? We're still there. And we are there to stay. The camps they're building there are permanent. Billions of dollars being spent. So, uh, you know, as always, we'll be out by Christmas, and there's no intention of leaving that place. We're that much closer to the Mideast for a war. That's what I, I, I say. But William Donahue with the Catalyst, you know, he tries. It's, uh, I guess they have 340,000 members. The Catholic League would be more prominent. And what him and his outfit do is every time that there's some really anti-Catholic bashing going, they write letters and so on. And it does some good, but I'm sure that you know these big stations, what they do, will apologize for this, and the next day they do it again in a different way. Yes? You were correct in saying how the word propaganda has become you know, a really bad word. And I think it, that in itself is, is um, something that, that they really made a point of doing, because who were the propagandists for centuries but those who were out in the faith? Uh, the propagation of the faith. It's not an evil word, but it picked it up evil with Gable, see? And those who promote the faith look bad as well by making the word uh, a bad word. Yeah. I mean, it's a real word. It's a real event in life. We are propagandized. There's no doubt about it. You're propagandized in this country by a mission. If you had more sources of information, they would have to work harder to propagandize you, but you don't. The opposition is pretty much muted. Heard all of us go through discouragement, frustration, uh, just trying to, on a daily basis, say, talk about the faith and take a stand for what is right or speak about the good things for our country. Could you maybe, uh, when it comes to what is targeted at people, just like sicknesses, we avoid certain things that lead to sickness. What are some of the things that are done psychological warfare-wise that are targeted at us as Catholics and as Americans to demoralize us and to destroy the will of the system? I think it would take a college semester to do that. 
Really, because I mean, all I did was I'm talking in almost generic terms here. You know, I'm not using specific examples. But uh, you're, you're literally under constant attack, just like I used here. They're not really interested in Pius XII or history or honest history. It's a way to attack the church and to undermine it. And it works with uneducated Catholics. Because I don't want to, you know, Pius XII was a bad guy. He could have done all this. Well, why didn't anyone else do anything? You know, Churchill wrote a, what, a five-volume history of the war. Eisenhower wrote a multi-volume history of the war. None of them even mentioned the Holocaust. But the Pope really tried to do something. He gave people false documents. He gave asylum. They were living in monasteries, nunneries, and everything else. And he had nothing but favorable things, but today it's twisted 180 degrees. But we shouldn't give up. We have our religion. I believe God's in control. And uh, for these people, you know, that uh, I guess they call themselves evangelicals, that they believe we should support Israel because that's what the Bible says. And when the time comes for the end of the world, we're going to be uh, raptured. The rapture is not something, this started in the 18th century. And it's all hinged on one thing of the Bible of a woman in the field disappearing or something. But I mean, only looking at it logically is, why weren't the people in Rome raptured when they were persecuted by the Roman Empire? Why weren't the people in the Soviet Union raptured or in China or any place else? See, it's wishful thinking, but this propaganda is very effective to get masses of Christians to support Israel. And they do. I just met one last night at my 50th high school reunion. I mean, I couldn't believe it. This is a guy I graduated from school with. He believes this garbage. Oh, we have to do this for Israel because that's what the Bible said. It doesn't say anything about that in the Bible. That's a big question in my mind. We need a leader, you know? We need a leader because if you had somebody with, say, Cardinal Spellman's stature, you know, he was known all over the place, and say, wait a minute, you're going too far. These are outright lies. And I'm not going to defend them and try to waste my time doing that. I'm going to attack you for what you did to us. And believe me, it's endless out there what you could use. And the Catholics are divided. We're a perfect example. We're down near one-fourth of the country now, 23% or something like that. If there was any unification, we could sway any election in any state. We're almost one in four. But there is absolutely no leadership. And then they'll say, we can't say anything because of the 5013C approval by the IRS. This is baloney. All the other religions say what they want. And we're even afraid to talk against abortion. Colonel, thank you for an excellent talk. Uh, Soviet KGB defector Yuri Besmanov, 1971, escaped from India. In 1985, in an interview program, he commented that every communist revolution has four stages. Disinformation or propaganda, 
destabilization crisis, and then after the communists take control in a crisis, an indefinite period of what they call normalization. In light of the, he also commented in 85 that uh, the propaganda in America had reached a degree to which Lenin never could have conceived possible because of what was being said then and, and, and the fact that the American people were, were, uh, were buying it. Uh, based on these two pieces of information and, and your extensive knowledge, could you comment first on what do you, what would you understand his meaning to be in terms of reaching a degree of propaganda that never could have been conceived in the 1920s or 30s, as in a different type or level? I'm, I'm maybe more definitive. If you perhaps can answer that. And the second thing is. To me, we're in the period of destabilization now, and that means that the crisis for America is probably right around the corner. Could you comment on what your understanding of, of the powers that be, what they're working for, and what you would foresee them doing in the near future? Well, the, the mass media is what changed propaganda. It used to be we had more papers were independent. Like I remember when I was young, uh, the Cardinal, I mean the Chicago Tribune was a conservative paper, and people used to read that. And then you had people like Father Coughlin, who when he died was called a fascist priest dies. But you know what, nothing Father Coughlin said that I've ever read didn't come true. But that's why he was hated and silenced. So <clears throat> the mass media we have today is makes, enables propagandist job much easier because we don't have any conflicting views. And they couldn't have done that. They couldn't even have done that in Nazi Germany, what, what we have today here, because you still had more independent sources in universities and so on in the Catholic Church. And uh, I, I guess I'm taking too much time, but let me say one last thing here. Uh, Hitler in 1939, uh, came across the euthanasia, I mean, he inaugurated a euthanasia program. And historians think the reason he did this was because he wanted the hospital beds for he, war casualties that he knew were coming. Okay, and in, in the end, this varies, but I guess he killed between 35,000 and 70,000 people. And these were people that were mentally and physically in really bad shape. So the Catholic Church found out about this and also some Protestants. And the Bishop of Munster, his name escapes me right now, wrote a letter to be read by every church in Germany to stop this program because it was so evil. And you know what? It stopped it. Not because Hitler was a nice guy, but he didn't want, he, he was a pragmatist. He didn't want to take on the churches. The point I'm making here again is somebody has to assume some leadership. And, uh, you know, I don't see any here for us. But again, that doesn't mean we should give up. The very fact that you're here and had this forum, you know, is certainly a positive step. And I commend you for it. So thank you. <laughs>